is exactly right. This is the third episode in a four-part series. Please listen to episodes one and two before listening to episode three. This episode contains discussions of sexual assault and violence against children, so listener discretion is advised. This is The Fall Line. Teresa Dean, I talked to her mama and her brother, but he was like, could you get us some encouragement? Well, I said, there's nothing to encourage you can tell them. If it ain't happened to you, it ain't nothing I can tell you that's going to encourage them because it, it's painful. And it's something you got to deal with every day. It, it ain't, well. Going to the grave mm-hmm. because my baby, I'm, I'm baby yeah. my child. And it don't get you better. Can go there and put a flower there, but it's, it's like an open, like everything just black. You can't see nothing. Twiggs County, Georgia. It is the center of things. Right in the middle of the state, along the fall line, with hills in one corner and pine flats spreading out and then south. Everything grows in Twiggs. The Okmogi River curves around the western border of the county, fed by creeks with names like Alligator and Big Sandy and Ugly. There's farmland and lumber and the white clay, kaolin, to keep the economy afloat. The official website calls Twigs, quote, a beautiful land of pleasant contrasts. And it is. At its western border, it meets Macon Bibb County. That means it's close to a big city, Macon. Big enough for middle Georgia, anyway. But Twiggs is still distinctly rural. That western edge is ridged with pines and clay pits and is sparsely populated. That's where Teresa Dean lived in 1999, with her mother, sisters, and her mother's partner, in a light blue trailer home on an acre of forested land. Teresa loved animals. The 11th Hour reported that she often brought home stray pets, kittens and cats mostly, but she loved dogs too. On August 15, 1999, she'd been particularly excited to go and see a neighbor's new puppies. Her 42-year-old mother, Dorothy, said that Teresa was expected home each night by 9.30, so just about full dark. Dorothy and her fiancé, 23-year-old Corey Landers, saw Teresa throughout the day, but not after mid to late afternoon. Two neighbors reported seeing her on the porch of the trailer home. They said she was holding a puppy. According to the Macon Telegraph, another claimed to see her playing near the house in a stand of pines. The official GBI reports contain a few important differences that are worth noting. Often, articles, especially those written in the years after a disappearance, may contain stories or memories not actually reported to the police. The agent in charge of Teresa's case told us that his files did not contain any mention of play by the Stand of Pines or that Teresa was seen with a puppy on the porch. But he did give us some new information. That when Teresa went to see the neighbor's puppies, she was told that if she could catch one, she could keep it. That same neighbor reported that Teresa went off in search of someone to help her catch a puppy. But he also said that she never came back to try her luck. 
Two cousins of Teresa's also reported seeing her that evening, though her mother may have disputed the sighting. These cousins said that they were returning home from a swim, just about dinner time, so 6.30 or so, and said they saw Teresa in front of her home. They reported that she asked them if she could go swimming, but that they'd said they were done for the day. But Teresa's mother, Dorothy, maintained that her daughter hadn't been near the house since about 2.30 p.m. An Atlanta Constitution article reported that Dorothy and Cody set out looking for Teresa when she wasn't home by the usual time, and that a neighbor eventually called the police. That would have been about 11 p.m. And according to the Constitution, that call was made after neighbors felt that Dorothy's search wasn't yielding results. There was some speculation about why Dorothy herself didn't ask someone to call, and she would have had to ask because she didn't have a phone. There could have been many reasons. As reported by 11th Hour News, the family had a history with defects. Recently, they'd moved counties without informing the office, so it's a reasonable guess that Dorothy didn't want to draw undue attention, and not if Teresa was simply playing nearby. In August 1999, Teresa was on the verge of 12. Her birthday would be that September 20th, just 16 days after the one-year anniversary of Shaikimia Pate's disappearance. And back in Unadilla, Georgia, Shaikimia's mother, Veronica, was nearly incapacitated with grief. When Teresa Dean vanished, reporters revived Shaikimia's case. They came to Veronica, asking her about her daughter. They wanted her to send a message to Teresa's family, something hopeful. But as you heard at the top of the episode, Veronica couldn't see how to do that, not without lying. At first glance, Teresa's case seems eerily similar to Shaikimia's. Both cases involved multiple law enforcement agencies. Both had, at the time, a $15,000 reward raised in a matter of days. Both victims were prepubescent girls from middle Georgia. Both disappeared near their own homes. Both families lived at or below the poverty line. According to the Associated Press, the search for Teresa involved helicopters, four-wheelers, dogs, and stretched over multiple counties, just like Shaikimia's. But there are a few distinct differences worth noting. Teresa was older than Shai, by barely two years, but still. Teresa was white. Unlike Shaikimia, Teresa had much shorter hair and she was bigger too, 75 pounds and approximately 4 feet 10 inches tall. She is repeatedly described as having unspecified medical needs, but no mention of required medication or treatment is made. Nickmac, NamUs, and the Charlie Project also note that Teresa had a speech impediment that might make her easier to identify. And there were some rumors, just rumors, that Teresa might have been taken out of state, perhaps for the purposes of sex trafficking, but law enforcement has been unable to verify any of these claims. And Teresa's landscape was very different from Shaikimia's. Twiggs County was full of old clay pits that had become ponds, and there were plenty of uninhabited acres of forest. According to the Associated Press, dragging those ponds was an immediate priority. Though some of the terrain was similar, farms, forest, the points of disappearance necessarily altered investigators' methods. When we spoke to the GBI, they pointed out how dangerous those woods were, how easy it is to get bitten by a snake, to fall, to drown. With these two cases, 
Perhaps the biggest difference, though, is in the tone of the coverage concerning the Dean family. As in Shaikimia's case, family members took polygraph tests. A separate Macon Telegraph article states that Dorothy told reporters that she'd passed hers. Cody, who was also self-reporting on his results, said he had not. The family stated that Cody had a, quote, anxiety condition that may have affected his results. According to numerous outlets, including The Charlie Project, Cody Landers was indicted in October 2000 on seven counts of child molestation. Those allegations came from neighborhood girls who spoke to the police during that initial search for Teresa. DFAX was already involved and took further measures once those reports were received. Some of these actions stemmed from case details preceding Teresa's disappearance. In early 2000, the Macon Telegraph quoted a DFAX caseworker as saying that, quote, charges had escalated very recently, meaning prior to Teresa's disappearance. The reporter goes on to state, quote, Asked about abuse, DFAX said they couldn't talk specifically, but said there were more serious problems investigated. Dorothy's remaining daughters, 12 and 17, were removed from the home after Teresa's disappearance. The Telegraph reported they were to be in state custody for at least three days, and said Dorothy Dean was upset with the decision. She's quoted as saying, They say they need to keep them for their own safety, but they're safe here. Eleventh Hour News notes that Cody Landers has never been explicitly identified as a suspect in Teresa's disappearance. The Atlanta Constitution wrote that Landers himself told reporters he was a suspect, but that information has never been verified by authorities. In a 2000 Macon Telegraph long-form article, then-Sheriff Doyle Stone stated that authorities had received multiple tips that Teresa was buried on her family's property, under the trailer. He told the Telegraph, quote, These are all leads the department has checked out before, but we'd need to go back and check again. In my heart, I still believe Cody Landers knows more than what he's saying. That article's author, Debbie Rhine, wrote that Dorothy, quote, firmly believed that her fiancé had nothing to do with Teresa's disappearance. According to NBC, Dorothy's relationship with the sheriff's office remained fraught, and multiple outlets reported that she declined to cooperate with their investigation. That said, the Atlanta Constitution did note that she self-reported cooperation with the GBI. Cody Landers was never charged in Teresa's case. However, he eventually served four years of a 10-year sentence for child molestation. Dorothy maintains that he was with her in her home that entire afternoon and evening. And to date, no evidence that connects him to Teresa's disappearance has been publicly announced. When we visited the GBI Region 13 office, we had the opportunity to discuss Teresa's case, too, with an agent who's been working on it since the beginning. He believes that there's a good chance that her remains are still in the area where she disappeared, and he urges anyone with information to call in, especially hunters or hikers who've noticed small areas of disturbed ground. They've dragged the kaolin pits extensively, but as all the agents pointed out, the water there is nearly opaque. So if a hunter or fisherman came across anything that might belong to a child, they are also urged to call in. The GBI tell us they aren't interested in why a witness might have been at the location or what they were doing. They just want to find Teresa. Could Shaikimia and Teresa have been kidnapped by the same individual? There are eerie similarities, but investigators have never publicly made a connection between the cases. 
and the girls lived over an hour away from each other. The victimology differs in both race and living situation. There was no male partner living in Shaikimia's home at the time of her disappearance. As with many other scenarios, a connection between the girls' cases is possible, but it's not probable. If Teresa Dean's case is connected to those of any other missing or murdered children, the most likely links are the kidnappings and murders of Shannon Polk in 2001 and Heaven Ross in 2003. NBC reports that Shannon and Heaven, both from Alabama, also disappeared from just outside their neighborhoods. Both lived in trailer parks. Both were 11. Both weighed 75 pounds. And, like Teresa, both disappeared in August. Each girl within the same week, two years apart. Teresa on August 15, 1999. Shannon on August 16, 2001. Heaven on August 19, 2003. It feels like a clear pattern emerging around some sort of anniversary, though that has never been verified. The Montgomery Examiner reported that, quote, In all three cases, construction, such as commercial construction, roadwork, or bridge building was being done nearby, though NBC notes that that is a theory rather than a fact. But if it's accurate, this similarity would put unfamiliar workers, some perhaps even traveling to the areas, within the vicinity of all three children. Eleventh Hour reports that all three children rode their bikes through their neighborhoods, and they also walked to their bus stops. So, plenty of chance for a stranger to see them and to learn their patterns. Teresa was on summer break, but she was following the same basic schedule each day. Long stretches of free-range play outside. According to Eleventh Hour, Georgia and Alabama law enforcement officers spotted the similarity in the cases. The Associated Press reports that they formed, quote, a multi-state task force. And a 2006 Montgomery Advertiser article mentions a composite sketch of a possible suspect. Quote, Earlier this year, Georgia officials began circulating the composite sketch of a potential suspect in the Polk disappearance. The man in the sketch, the second generated by the Polk investigation, is allegedly the last person seen with Shannon before she vanished. End quote. According to the 11th Hour, quote, Shannon was spotted by at least two friends with a man they didn't recognize, but who they later described to police as being 35 to 45 years old and 5'11 to 6 feet tall, with a noticeably large mole underneath his right eye, a pronounced beer belly, muscular arms, and blonde hair streaked with gray. News reports at the time added witnesses had also noticed a white four-door car nearby, noting they saw red clay mud on the back, end quote. This is the same description Georgia authorities circulated. If they have received any leads based on this information, it has not been covered in mainstream news media. A major difference in the Alabama cases and Teresa's is that, eventually, Shannon and Heaven's remains were recovered. The advertiser reports that Shannon's body was uncovered by rabbit hunters a little over a month after her disappearance. For Heaven's family, who called her Shay, it would be a much longer wait three years and four months. According to the Tuscaloosa News, quote, police have never revealed how they believe Shay was killed. She was found, however, at an abandoned house. Quote, the rundown, secluded house off Crescent Ridge Road in Holt was hard to find if you didn't know where you were going and was known as a spot where people used drugs and did other illegal activities, end quote. 
The reporter mentions that law enforcement believes someone would have seen something, but perhaps are afraid to come forward. Shannon lived in Prattville and Heaven in Northport, which are about an hour and a half apart. But Twiggs is roughly four hours from both towns. Unadilla is a similar distance. Perhaps a traveling contract worker, if that construction angle is indeed an important connecting factor, could be involved. Though, Shikimia would be the least likely. A stranger would have been noticed on Crumpler Avenue. And if the composite is accurate, the man seen with Shannon was white. As noted in our last episode, predators tend to select targets of their own race. It's not universal, but it's usually the case. There have been recent developments in Shannon's death. A series of Montgomery Advertiser articles covered the 2017 establishment and extension of a grand jury convened on the case. According to the Advertiser, officials declined to say what the grand jury was reviewing, but District Attorney Randall Houston did offer some hope. Quote, Technology has improved so that evidence that was collected then that couldn't be tested for forensic evidence can now be tested. I honestly feel we have the best chance of solving this case now that we've had in the past 16 years. End quote. When we visited GBI's Region 13 office, we spoke to Assistant Special Agent in Charge Todd Crosby, and we asked him what, if any, connections might be made between Teresa and Shikimia's cases. He also discussed with us whether Teresa might be connected to the deaths of Heaven and Shannon. Teresa Dean uh, case and uh... Shikimia's case were looked at, um, but no evidence was found, no correlation was found between them that would ever link that case together. Uh, you know, for example, one of them, a very um, rural area versus uh, area that's very crowded. And there were no similarities that we could find. Uh, both were of different races, um, even though the age was similar, even though the weight the size of the two young ladies were similar. Um, that was all that we could find that was similar in that case. So no connection was ever made between those two. But whenever you look at the Nick Mick uh, and, and how they linked together the two Alabama cases, uh, Nick Mick did look at that. Uh, we looked at that, and the two girls from Alabama – they could be linked together, but nothing with uh, Teresa Dean was ever linked to that, and we just think that was totally separate suspects on it. Shikimia's mother, Veronica Pate, followed Teresa Dean's case to a point, but it was painful. In 2002, she told the Macon Telegraph, quote, It hurts me to know that another little child is missing. I just wish people would leave our children alone. That year, from September 1998 to August 1999, was hard on middle Georgia parents. Shikimia and Teresa's cases weren't the only child-related tragedies that occurred in the area, though they are the two that remain unsolved. You've heard us mention Cordial, Georgia on this show before, in our last season. We told a story that ended there, in March of 1999, when Tracy Thompson was just outside Cordial and was ruthlessly beaten with a baseball bat. The injury she sustained proved fatal, and she died at an area hospital. Tracy wasn't from Cordille. She was traveling, probably with a long-haul trucker. But 1998's other victim, three-year-old Tevin Hammond, was from the town. 
Cordiel is less than 25 miles from Unadilla, and their paper often covers Unadilla news, like Shaikimia's disappearance. Little Tevin Hammond was reported missing on December 2, 1998, and his body was found later that same day. Largely, the press coverage of Tevin Hammond's case is limited to the Cordial Dispatch, the Macon Telegraph, and the Atlanta Constitution. Perhaps it's because his disappearance and death were resolved so quickly, barely a blip on the state news radar. But Cordial certainly felt the effects. In the days after Tevin's murder, Cordial Police Chief Dwayne Oreck told the Macon Telegraph, quote, Everybody has the same problems as the big cities, just on a smaller scale. In my nine years here, we've never had a crime like this. On December 1, 1998, Tevin Hammonds was playing outside the Drayton Apartments complex, where he lived with his baby sister and his mother, Faye. Faye had been speaking to a local man named Roger Lloyd. The Telegraph reports that she asked Lloyd to watch Tevin while she walked over to a neighbor's apartment. After that, reports vary. Some say she was visiting, and others say that she needed to use the phone. When she returned, which both the Augusta Chronicle and the Macon Telegraph report as being after about five minutes, Tevin and Lloyd were gone. There aren't direct quotes from Faye in this news coverage, but it's reported that she didn't alert authorities to Tevin's absence until the morning of Wednesday, December 2nd. According to the Telegraph, she did so after questioning Lloyd as to Tevin's whereabouts. She is reported as having assumed Tevin had gone home with Lloyd but when she saw him the next morning, the toddler wasn't with him. That's when Faye alerted authorities. As reported by the Associated Press, Lloyd was questioned that morning by Crisp County authorities and denied knowing Tevin's whereabouts. However, he approached investigators later in the day as they were conducting the search. At that point, he indicated he knew where Tevin could be found. He then led them to an area near Cordial's Farmer's Market, just over the county line. According to the Telegraph's recitation of court notes, quote, Lloyd described taking Kevin to a vacant trailer, and that's where Tevin was sexually assaulted. Lloyd then, quote, walked the child to a mound of dirt next to some trash bins and told the little boy to lie down. Lloyd strangled Tevin and hid his small body under a pile of nearby trash. Lloyd said, quote, he was angry at Tevin's mother for rebuffing his advances. Roger Lloyd had a lengthy criminal history. Public records indicate he vandalized a cemetery, assaulted a 13-year-old girl, and abused at least two ex-girlfriends. The Constitution reported that Lloyd was set to go to trial, was indeed in the courtroom, when he offered a spontaneous admission of guilt. At the time, Bill Rankin of the AJC wrote that this outburst occurred, quote, during jury selection. Lloyd was eventually sentenced to death, and during Lloyd's appeals, that initial plea was a major point of contention. The Telegraph reported that Lloyd had an IQ of 80 and had received extensive inpatient psychiatric treatment. His lawyers argued that these factors should have been taken into account. In general, IQ-based arguments focus on scores of 70 or below. Lloyd attempted several appeals, all of which were denied. The last came in 2011 just months before his death, not from state execution, but from complications of the AIDS virus. He had been HIV positive at the time of Tevin's assault, and his awareness of that status had led to further charges in the case. Because of the proximity, 
both in time and in place, of Tevin's kidnapping and Shakimia's disappearance, some have drawn comparisons. Though Lloyd could have traveled to Unadilla, there's no evidence that he did. And investigators have never made any statements indicating that the suspect was from out of town or that Lloyd might be a suspect. But perhaps most importantly, when duly investigators spoke to us, we gleaned two important pieces of information. One, they already have a suspect in mind. And two, that suspect is still alive. Dead eight years, it's obvious that Lloyd doesn't fit the bill. In 2001, Sheriff's investigator Randy Lamberth told The Telegraph, quote, We don't anticipate it's a stranger who abducted her. We feel like it's somebody she knows. We know that it's not certain. Other killers roamed the South in the late 1990s. In fact, in 2019, most minds go straight to the man who may now be considered the most prolific serial killer the U.S. has ever seen. Since Samuel Little's arrest, his name seems to float to the surface of possibilities in every unsolved case. But as far as we've been able to determine, Little's last known crime occurred in 1997 and his last victim in the South in the early 1990s. As of the writing of this episode, all of his known victims were adult women. There are others, like serial killer Paul Drusseau, who were in the South in the late 1990s when Shaikimia and Teresa disappeared. Drusseau's victims were all young adult black women found after their murders. There's no known connection between Drusseau and any case involving children. But there are predators who have viewed Unadilla as a hunting ground. The Sex Offender Registry for Dooley and its surrounding counties includes information on a number of residents convicted of violent sexual crimes and crimes against children, some dating as far back as the early 90s. Most of these stories have never made the news, but one series of assaults, which took place in Unadilla, on and around Crumpler Avenue, did. Birthdays, anniversaries, holidays, these are the important dates that most people tend to remember. The Parcast Network, it remembers important dates in true crime history. Today in True Crime is the new daily podcast that takes you back to the biggest events in true crime that happened each day in history. Whether the crime is infamous or just plain interesting, there's a crime story for every day of the year. Like August 31st, 1888, Jack the Ripper commits his first murder. October 3rd, 1995, O.J. Simpson is acquitted. November 19th, 2017, cult leader Charles Manson dies. With new episodes each day, you'll never run out of true crime content again. And you no longer have to wait for weeks to get your true crime fix. Crime never takes a day off, and now, neither does Parcast. Follow Today in True Crime for free on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Take coloring your hair at home to the next level with Madison Reed. You deserve gorgeous, professional hair color delivered to your door for less than $25. For decades, women have had two options for coloring their hair, outdated at-home color or the time and expense of a salon. Many Madison Reed clients comment how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love the results. Gorgeous, shiny, multi-dimensional, healthy-looking hair. Madison Reed delivers gray covering, game-changing color you can do at home and look as if you just came from the salon. 
What makes Madison Recolor unique is that it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm to create over 45 gorgeous multi-tonal shades. One of my favorite things about Madison Reed are the ingredients. Things I feel good about using in my hair, like argan oil and keratin, and nothing I don't. Madison Reed doesn't use phthalates or parabens or gluten in their products. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. The Fall Line listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code FALLLINE, F-A-L-L-L-I-N-E. That's code FALLLINE at madison-reed.com. We'd like to invite our listeners to check out our friends at the podcast Missing Mara Murray. Missing Mara Murray covers the mysterious disappearance of 21-year-old college student Mara Murray. In February of 2004, Mara drove three hours from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts, to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. There she vanished. She has not been seen or heard from since. Now, two filmmakers have set out to find answers to this mystery by diving deep into Mara's life, the region in which she went missing, and the online world of citizen detectives. You can find the full archive on Stitcher Premium. Since producing over 100 episodes on Mara's mysterious disappearance, the hosts are branching out to other missing person and unsolved cases as they promote the nonprofit Private Investigations for the Missing, which was started by missing person Brianna Maitland's father. Check out Missing Mara Murray on your favorite podcatcher now. There's a kind of fear that's difficult to explain if you haven't felt it. A communal fear, gathering up the corners of a place and pulling everything taut. L.A. has felt it. New Orleans, Washington, D.C., Sacramento, Irvine, Atlanta. No matter how many modern conveniences, how many protections we have, there's something deep inside that can sense a predator in the community, can sense danger coming. In 2001, Unadilla, Georgia, could sense that threat. The attacks there had begun in May, in their own homes. Pine Street is a residential drive that intersects with Crumpler Avenue. That's where, in her family home, a 14-year-old girl was awoken by a man. He held a knife to her and ordered her outside. They moved silently through the house and then to an isolated area, still in the vicinity of Pine Street. There, he sexually assaulted her. It is not reported how she made her way home. She would be the first of seven. According to the Macon Telegraph, the crimes came in quick succession that summer. Break-ins and sexual assaults are attempted assaults. One survivor was an adult, a convenience store clerk attacked while on the job. The rest were children, ranging in age from 11 to 15. The Associated Press reported that the attacker struck almost exclusively in public housing. He entered through windows, some were already open in the stifling summer heat, and he carried sleeping children from their rooms, taking them outside. May 8th, the 14-year-old. June 12th, a 13-year-old. August 13th, a 12-year-old. And there were more attempted break-ins and three other attempted assaults, including the July 19th attack on an 11-year-old. She woke up to a stranger carrying her through her own dark house. She screamed, he fled. As the Constitution reported, that was the mistake that caught him. DNA left at that scene. But it took time, and she wasn't the last. 
In Unadilla, especially in neighborhoods where families lived in public housing, the summer seemed never-ending. Their fear and frustration is clear in local news reports. A reporter from the Macon Telegraph complained that police reports were being withheld and described the citizens as, quote, scared to death. In early August of 2001, he also wrote, quote, The incidents serve as a chilling reminder to everyone to keep their doors and windows locked. That isn't easy in the summer. As the Associated Press reported, measures were taken. Quote, the council passed an anti-loitering ordinance giving police greater authority to arrest people on the streets after 11 p.m. City and Dooley County Sheriff's deputies also beefed up patrols, especially in the neighborhoods where the attacks occurred. End quote. At the time of the attacks, the police force had four officers and counted on the sheriff's office to supplement the patrols. The GBI was brought in in August and conducted the test that eventually identified the perpetrator. And that man? Quentin Kendricks, age 20. He lived 300 yards from Shikimia Pate's home. After Kendricks was charged, information slowly drifted in. Kendricks was, quote, quiet and liked video games and basketball. At first, he was only positively connected to two crimes. The DNA testing took time. The Telegraph reported that, quote, although many residents were surprised to hear Kendrick was the man police believe raped the two girls, local law enforcement officers say he was a suspect early on, end quote. Apparently, law enforcement often saw him walking around Unadilla neighborhoods at night. Kendrick had a juvenile record for rape, which he told the Constitution was misconstrued consensual sex. The attack occurred at his middle school, and he served time in a juvenile facility. According to the Cordial Dispatch, his record was made public after he got into a physical fight with a young woman at his high school. Though Kendrick was incarcerated throughout parts of the late 1990s, he was free at the time Shakimia disappeared. In fact, he was released shortly before she vanished. At the time of his arrest, Kendrick's family said they had a hard time believing the charges, but he was eventually linked through DNA and is currently serving the last stretch of a 20-year sentence for rape and burglary. It came to light that he'd actually known at least one of his victims and that her mother considered Kendrick a friend. She'd actually braided his hair shortly before the attack. The child's mother told the Atlanta Constitution, quote, She won't discuss the assault. She keeps quiet about it. And I don't know what to think because I've never experienced it. I don't think anyone who hasn't experienced it really understands. Veronica Pate knew Quentin Kendrick. So did Chris Foster, Shaikemia's father. After all, Kendrick lived only a few houses away. In a 2001 Telegraph article, Chris Foster, Shaikemia's father, notes that he didn't think Kendrick would have done anything to Shai. He and Kendrick had spent time together socializing, and he hadn't seen any warning signs. That said, law enforcement has certainly explored this theory. The GBI questioned him, searched his property, and, according to the Constitution, brought out cadaver dogs. Kendrick told the Telegraph that he saw Shaikimia on the day she disappeared and that she'd walk by his house with a group of girls. Quote, that was the last time I saw her. When they walked by the first time, there was a lot of people out because it was almost dark at the time. In an AJC article published the same week, Kendrick expressed concern for the family. He's quoted as saying, I would be the same way if I had a little sister. If I had a sister, I wouldn't want anything like that to happen to her either. But I want them to know it wasn't me. 
When we interviewed Randy Lamberth of the Dooley County Sheriff's Office, he indicated to us that an old well on the Kendricks property had been excavated during the search for Shikimia. During the time the ground searches and everything was done, a open well was discovered in the area of where Shasha went missing. Uh, this was actually flagged for later search. Uh, reason for the later search being where we could get a team of experts in here who had the proper tools and so to go in and actually dive this well or excavate the well, whichever is preferred. Uh, this team was brought in from the uh, Macon Bib Fire Rescue Units up there. They've done a great job. Uh, they come in. It, it took uh, approximately half a day to clear this well, but it was also cleared with negative results. To our knowledge, Quentin Kendricks, who is currently incarcerated at Augusta State Prison, is not considered a serious person of interest at this time. Of all the predators discussed this episode, he certainly best fits the bill. Young female victims, living in the neighborhood, plenty of opportunity. Shaikimia's disappearance does predate his attacks by three years, but he also had those juvenile incidences on his record, so he can't be fully discounted without a direct statement from law enforcement. Many of the theories discussed in this episode, these possibilities, assume that Shaikimia met with foul play, that she didn't survive the week or perhaps even the night. Her family, though, suspects there's another option that Shaikimia was taken alive and either can't contact them or doesn't know her own story, that she doesn't even know she's lost. As a medically fragile child, Shaikimia would have needed considerable treatment and would have continued to need that treatment. And her specific combination of ailments, asthma, kidney issues, an underdeveloped bladder, problems with her knees, would have made her stand out among other patients. The family has often wondered if hospitals were contacted in areas of Georgia, or maybe Florida, or Michigan, where they know so many people. If someone was truly conversant with Shaikimia's needs, perhaps she could have been kept healthy and could be alive today. After all, the family has read stories of other children who've gone missing for years, decades even, and returned. And, though rare, there are such cases. There's Stephen Stainer. His story is well-known, largely because of the TV movie made about his life, I Know My First Name is Stephen. According to the Lodi News Sentinel, Stephen was kidnapped in 1972, when he was just seven years old. A stranger, an accomplice of his eventual captor, intercepted Stephen on his walk home from school. He was then held by his kidnapper, Kenneth Parnell, for eight years. He was assaulted and manipulated by the much older Parnell, who called him Dennis. During that time, he also attended school and moved about with some freedom, at least externally. Stephen did not contact his family. Parnell had told him that they didn't want him and had given Parnell custody. Only when Parnell kidnapped a new, younger boy did Stephen act. He rescued the other child, Timothy White, and went to a police station. At that point, he'd been gone eight years. And then there's J.C. Dugard, who was kidnapped off the street in 1991. She was held captive by a married couple, the Garritos, for 18 years, long enough to give birth to two children. Eventually, she'd been held so long, abused and manipulated so long, that the Garritos trusted that, even as she worked for their home business, she would not alert customers to her identity. In her memoir, A Stolen Life, 
she describes the moment when she finally felt safe enough to seek help, after Paul Garrido's parole officer realized something was amiss. At that time, she was 29 years old. Then there are the three women, Amanda Berry, Michelle Knight, Gina de Jesus, who were kidnapped by Ariel Castro. Castro, who imprisoned them in his Ohio home, managed to keep them hidden for a decade. The women were rescued only when a neighbor, someone who'd been to Castro's house for barbecues and had never suspected a thing, heard Amanda Berry screaming for help through a lock screen door. By that time, Berry had given birth to a child. According to the Associated Press, she'd been missing since the day before her 17th birthday. Michelle Knight, a 21-year-old, was kidnapped on her way to a custody hearing. Gina de Jesus was a friend of Castro's daughter and was only 14 when Castro offered her a ride home. The stories go on. In our third season, we told you about Carlina White and Kamaya Mobley, both who were kidnapped as infants. Both women were adults before they learned the truth. There's Elizabeth Smart, Nguyen Tai Van, Natasha Kampish. The list is ultimately short, especially when compared with those who are found dead or never found at all. But the list does exist. So, if Shaikhimia is alive out there, somewhere, what then? Veronica has considered this time and again. Authorities have even discussed it with her, preparing her that if, if Shai is found, she may not want to reunite with her family. And then they asked me one time, even if, even if they fire her, she might not want to come back. So would I have a problem with that? And I was like, if you tell me she alive somewhere, and even if she grown and she refused to come back or she don't want to meet her, all I want to know she alive. But I say I doubt if that ever happened that way. So, you know, I take that chance. L- let me find out that way that she don't want to come. But if you find her, I think you should tell me. And Veronica says she's had a few strange experiences that make her wonder, make her think Shaikimia might still be here, and maybe not so far away. When we visited Veronica and Unadilla, she recounted some of those moments. That Christmas that she got missing, I had bought her some shoes, some clothes, some baby dolls, and I still had her Christmas presents wrapped up. And even my house had caught a fire in um, two, in August the 8th of 2000, but her stuff was still wrapped up. I never did unwrap it. still had smoke on the paper and everything. When I left my house to go to the billboard to do an interview, when I got back, my baby Christmas presents were gone. Until Veronica has that answer, she lives in between, with the same question that's haunted her since September 4th, 1998. What happened to my daughter? She sometimes thinks she might know who could have taken Shaikimia, who might want to raise her far away from Unadilla, who might be able to make a child forget. Law enforcement has followed those leads, and so far, there's not been a trace. So Veronica waits. She keeps putting up the Christmas tree. She steals herself each September. And law enforcement? They know Veronica is waiting. And the case stays not just open, but, according to the GBI Region 13 office, active. When we visited the GBI this summer, a new agent, Madison Holland, was turning his focus to Shaikimia. Assistant Special Agent in Charge Todd Crosby walked us through their approach, plus discussed some of the difficulties that arise in any missing persons investigation. 
in these old cases, especially one that's 21 years old like this case, I mean, where to begin? And that is to treat this case just like it happened. Um, this case has just been reassigned and to uh, Special Agent Madison Holland, who is a very capable, uh, good um, investigator, good GBI agent. In fact, he's got experience with uh, cold cases because he's already solved two of our old cold cases here at the Perry office and is on his way to solving a third one. And he's the one that's been reassigned this case. And so he'll start at the beginning and he'll go back and he'll just start re-interviewing everybody, just like if this was an old or a new case, rather, if, if, just like it just happened. And so he'll start over working the case. And, you know, some of, the pro, some of the things that we run into working cold cases is that these cases, I mean, they're old. And um, people's memory is not what they used to be. Uh, memories fade. Uh, people die. You know, we've run into that with several of the um, old cases. And if you'll notice, I call them old cases. I don't call them cold cases. Um, we review every case here at this office uh, at least four times a year. And we are always looking for new new leads. And I don't like referring to them as cold cases. I just like to say they're old cases because we had not quit working them. I mean, we're always following leads on these cases. Uh, one of the bigger problems we run into is DNA back in the 1990s, especially the early 1990s, was a new concept. Uh, in fact, the first DNA case in the state of Georgia was in 1991. So it's a fairly new concept, especially when uh, Shakimia Pate's case occurred. And so the handling of evidence... Uh, they may have been handled without gloves on. And if you go with today's new technology trying to test DNA evidence from back in the 90s, 80s, um, late 90s, there's a potential for uh, historical DNA being there. And that may be where a, a medical examiner picked up you know, a, a pair of clothing without gloves on. And now there's touch DNA or low-count DNA there that's being picked up um, by this new technology. So you have that contamination issue there also. Um, the landscape has changed. You know, we've, we've run into that with several of the old cases that we have looked back into where landscape has changed. So working these old cases are very problematic at times, um, and there's a varying reasons why that may be. If anybody has information, no matter how small or how unimportant they may think this is, uh, please call us with it. Um, that's, that's the big thing that I would say. Um, we know these cases because we review these cases all the time. And um, where it may not be important to you, it would be important to us because we may know little nuances of these cases that you wouldn't know. So any information, we, we ask people to call uh, the Crime Stoppers or the GBI tip line. Uh, it can be anonymous. Um, they had not got to leave a name. But, but the reason a case becomes old, or in some cases people call them cold, is because we quit getting leads. And so any leads in this case would be helpful uh, I can assure you they'll be run down and looked into. Uh, in Shakemia's case, we have collected 
DNA from her mother. Uh, this DNA has been sent to uh, University of North Texas, who will process the DNA and then send it over to NamUs, who will put it into a missing persons database. Um, and if a um, person is found outside the state and that DNA is then sent to NamUs, that database will connect it together. So DNA has been collected from the mother to be put into this missing persons database. But as far as testing any evidence for DNA, there was no evidence collected in this case that we could send to the crime lab to be tested for DNA because it's a missing person. Uh, you don't have a crime scene to work with. If you have any information regarding the whereabouts of Shikemia Pate, you may report them, even anonymously, to the GBI or the Dooley County Sheriff's Office. Call 1-800-597-TIPS or 229-645-0930. There is a $20,000 reward in her case. If you can help bring resolution to the case of Teresa Dean, where there is a $15,000 reward, you can call the GBI at that same number, 1-800-597-TIPS. Special thanks to Angie Dodd for her generous support. Our research assistants are Haley Gray, Kim Fritz, and Brooke Floyd. Content advisors are Brandy Williams and Liv Fallon. Music by RJR. Allison McCallum assisted with administrative duties, and a special thanks to our new producer, Maura Curry, who engineered and mastered these episodes. Find our merch in the Exactly Right Pod Swag store. A portion of our proceeds are donated to support the work of the DNA Doe Project. Next time on The Fall Line, we discuss the trails investigators have followed over the years, the people who have contacted Veronica, and what might still be done today, and how you can help. If you want to participate, check out Billy Jensen's book, Chase Darkness With Me, which comes out on August 13th, as we're going to be talking about some of the techniques he used in the book to solve or help solve 10 murders and to find missing people. We hope you'll join us then. Hi, this is Allison Horrocks, host of the Strange and Unusual podcast. If you enjoy dark history, legends, folklore, murder mysteries, superstition, ghost stories, and more, then this is the podcast for you. On the Strange and Unusual podcast, we explore the fear of the unknown throughout history and how today we still feel the shadowy presence of our ancestors' struggles to explain the unknown. Through current-day pulp culture, urban legends, rituals, and even murder, we are still just fighting to keep our monsters in the dark. You can find the Strange and Unusual podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and more. Visit the Strange and Unusual podcast.com for links to the show.